This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is indeed the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And today's guest, I'm really delighted to have a very well-known, highly respected British historian, uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore. I hope I pronounced that properly. Well, first of all, hello. Great to be with you. And secondly, um, you know, I, I think you'd appreciate that there are many pronunciations of that name. I mean, if you wanted to um, do the Arabic and Italian version, mm-hmm. I'm sure you could, you could Monte, guess what Montefiore. that would be. Montefiore. and try the Arab version of Seabag. I'm not sure about that. Seabag. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You can try that if you like. <laughs> uh, and what that does, of course, is that says uh, that uh, our guest has a lineage that goes back well, everybody has a lineage, but he knows his, and it goes back a very long time through uh, Britain and Livorno in Italy and ultimately into the Sephardic world, including distant relatives or distant antecedents who ended up in Spanish Mexico. That's right. That's right. I mean, the family is quite an interesting family in that sense. It dovetails very nicely with the world history, and I have put them in a bit into the book. But, um, I mean, we can trace them back a long way, as a lot of Sephardic families can. Every once in a while, I run across somebody who says, oh, well, I had a Sephardic great-grandmother. In fact, I know somebody from here, well, she's originally from Russia, who moved here and is now the rabbi in the American Virgin Islands, which is a Sephardic synagogue from the 1700s. That's a wonderful idea. The uh, Sephardic rabbi of the, the Virgin Islands. Yeah, think about that. I like it. I mean, there are a lot of Russian families that are actually descended from Sephardic families that came out of Spain. I mean, the name Shapiro is the most well-known, mm. the most well-known as it's clearly a Spanish name, mm. which has become a Jewish-Russian name. And a lot of them probably would have been in the Odessa area, too. Well, I'm the ultimate Jewish mongrel. I'm descended from just about everywhere. There are very few countries I can't claim to be a native. When I go on book tour... The local newspapers often say native son returns and it applies to about, everywhere. about 20 countries. Yeah. Cause in, in Russia, Belarus, yeah, Ukraine, Livorno, Italy, and Spain, Portugal, Morocco, and, um, Lithuania on your mother's side. Right? Yeah. What we're talking about, of course, is that, uh, our guest is on a book tour for his newest book, which is called The World of Family History. And it's a monster of a book. It's about it's great for a doorstop. It's fascinating reading. I've been dipping into it now for the last two months when a copy was on my local bookstore shelves, and I now have a copy of my own, and I'm pushing my way through it. Enjoy. I am. I'm intrigued with the idea that two of the best-known British historians both had the same first name. You yes. and another man by the name of Simon, Simon Sharma. Simon Sharma. Yeah, well, we're, the, we're known as the two Simons. Okay. But actually, I hate the name Simon. I, I know one calls me Simon, except, um, you know, except my mother and my father and my brothers. And my, my mother and father are dead, so that just leaves my brothers now. But okay. everyone calls me Seabag. Right. But it's actually my surname, as you know. So this is just a confusing one, but I know you appreciate these sort of things. The two of you have carved, it's not the same path, but you have, you've done a lot of research and writing on similar questions. 
That's true. Another book which I looked through previously was a portrait, a history, a chronology of Jerusalem. Yes, and he's he's written uh, histories of the Jews. Two volumes um, worth of this. Two volumes so far, and they're yeah. very good. I did a history of Jerusalem, which um, I loved doing, and it is in a way it's, it's, it's right on mentioning that because it's the companion volume to this, and anyone who enjoyed that Jerusalem will enjoy this. It's this, it's um it's also a sort of world history. I mean, it's a world history through the holy city of the three Abrahamic mm. faiths, and um, as Disraeli said, you know, a history of Jerusalem is the history of the world. And um, that gave me the idea, thank you, Benjamin Disraeli, of doing a history of the world. And it came, so it sort of descended from that book. Unless you're a Buddhist. Unless you're a Buddhist. Well, unless there are a lot of people who, who don't regard um, who don't regard Jerusalem as the center of the world, that's for sure. There's a footnote in your book. I did track that, that down. And you, you obliquely refer to your family uh, history in the book, which you, you don't make it a centerpiece. Obviously, is somehow present in much of it. When you're writing, when you're researching, does this history of your your genealogy, does it sit heavily on you or does it sit lightly? Do you manage to put it away or or can't you can you not escape it? That's why I can escape it and I have the detachment to see that it certainly doesn't deserve any more than a footnote. In various places in the book. I'm a great I'm aficionado and connoisseur of footnotes, and I love footnotes. But they have to be something that doesn't belong in the main text, either because it's too boring, but has to be in the book. And um, that's one sort. And the other sort is something so interesting that it, that, um, or fun or playful or quirky that, that shouldn't really be in the main text, but I can't resist putting it in. And my family history belongs in that category. But, but it's always present in us as, as it is in the psychology of all of us, our past, our parents, our, the world where we came from, our upbringing is always with us. Um, and yet on the other hand, you know, there are times when the family actually demonstrates something interesting. Mm. Like with the Carvajal family in Spain that you mentioned, where they were expelled from Spain for being Jews. They went to Portugal. They were expelled from Portugal, at which point they decided they'd better convert to Catholicism, go back to Spain as Catholics, but remain secret Jews, crypto-Jews. And then when Philip II wanted to... Um, find governors, educated governors for New Spain, now Mexico. He waived the blood purity, which excluded Jews often. And so they went back to Mexico, where they fell afoul of a rival government, a political, um, a political feud, who discovered from the servants that they were secret Jews and practicing as Jews still. They lit candles on Friday night or. Um, yeah, and they were saying, pra- they were saying Hebrew prayers. And didn't and, eat much pork, no doubt. And no pork, yeah. uh, which of course is very odd in, Sp- in a Spanish household. And they obviously bribed the servant. And, um, and as a result, they were arrested. And of course, they could have, they could have converted again or there were ways that you could avoid death, but they didn't. They were extraordinarily brave. Some of them teenage girls. They just insisted on they were Jews now. They came out as Jews, as it were, real Jews, and they were burnt at the stake. I have a high school friend who ended up as the state archaeologist in the state of New Mexico. And he, one of his many explorations was into that history. Oh, interesting. In places like Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Yeah. Which were then... Part of Spanish. Uh, yeah, and I think that they were actually in, and t- parts of Texas were in my ancestors' governorate. 
Um, I think territory was actually governed by him. That would have been New Spain. Yeah, back but it then. was the north. But it was the northern reaches where you sent someone of slightly um, dubious possible Jewish blood. You sent them up to the north because who wants to go there? That's not where all the fun. That's not where all the money is. As I've been reading this book, I've been trying to figure out who are the historians that have influenced you the most in the way you think of history. Because your your career, you've written a lot on the Soviet Union stroke Russia. Uh, you've written some fiction, too. You're a foreign correspondent in, in the then Soviet Union. But you have a, a real eye and an ear for the nature of history. Which historians are your people that you embrace as a way, of, as an optic for looking at these things? Well, I mean, funny enough, you mentioned Simon Sharma. And he's about, I'm not sure how much older than he is, but he's certainly a generation older yeah. than me. His book, Citizens, about the French Revolution, which I'm sure you know or have read, was one of those life-changing books. It really invented the new history, which is practiced by some American mm-hmm. writers like John Meacham and those pop, sort of popular historians who write using archives and scholarship. But not history from the ground up necessarily. Not it's necessarily. a little different. Not necessarily, but there's also that. But he, his Citizens invented what you might call the English school of modern modern history writing. Which has, you know, gone down well in, in America and also in many, uh, translate, you know, we're all translated into many languages, which is nice. But, so that was one, he was one of the influences on me and now, now we know each other. So it's, that's rather nice. But to answer your question more directly, um, when I started to write my first history book, which was Catherine the Great and Potemkin, I was, I, I wrote to the world expert on Catherine the Great, Professor Isabel de Madriaga, who, again, you all know this, whose father, Salvador de Mandriaga, was a liberal Spanish aristocrat who founded the League of Nations. So she herself is a something of a historical um, curiosity, but was also a brilliant, powerful um, female historian. I would say both imperious and imperial. She was a sort of dead ringer for Catherine the Great, too, and, um, and was quite self-consciously regal in her majestic um, correction of my text. She wasn't a friend of Potemkin, though. She, she was, she almost was, because, um, because, I mean, she was very strict. She taught me how to write history, basically. Okay, that's, that's what, that's what I was getting at. Yeah. Talk the mentorship out. She literally taught me how to write history. I did the, I sat with her. She saw me, um, repeat. She went over my text and she literally would just say, this is appalling. Do not say this. You know, this is ridiculous. Or everyone thinks that. Why write it that? You know, and she, she taught me. A combination of what I hope is elegant style, but also questioning of all conventional wisdoms and challenging of all conventional wisdoms. But in answer to your question about Potemkin and Catherine the Great, when I went to Potemkin's tomb in Kherson in, Ode- in, in Ukraine, she said to me, would you lay flowers? Would you lay a bouquet on his grave for me? So I think she did, in her own mind, she, she did know Prince Potemkin. You talk about, you hope that the style is important. Let me just, there's a, a, there was a phrase in an early part of the book when you're talking about the Ptolemies, the Romans, and I'm just going to read this, just a sentence. On the first night together, Antony fell for Cleopatra. She celebrated in Ptolemaic style with Bacchic banquets and sibling murder. That's not the way most historians write. Maybe not, maybe not, but I hope it's slightly different. I made a point of saying, that is the way to do it. That's how you balance you. the profane and the extraordinary. Um, I think that's right. But by the way, just to go, I, I love you quoted that because I work so hard on getting these things right. 
So I really appreciate when someone sort of notices it. That. That, that just left off the page for me because now you have a perfect visual image. They're having this bacchanal, and then afterwards we kill all the children. Yes, yes, exactly that. And of course, I always wanted to write that. I always wanted to show how normal life went on um, with with along with murder. I mean, for example, Stalin was doing his daughter's homework during the terror, helping her with her homework, but he was also signing death lists on the same days. So you know, I did my Stalin, did my Stalin, you know, that was always in my mind too. Yeah, I've always wanted to do something about a person. I mean, it, it's a little, it's a little grotesque, but an official state uh, torturer of some type or other who then goes home and reads his children bedtime stories. Well, that was, that was, that that's was Stalin. The, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've never really kind of embraced the sort of, you know, idea of the banality of evil because all of life is banal in some ways, unless there are sort of, unless you're having a bacchanal, of course. <laughs> But I mean, all of sort of daily life is is both banal and exciting and thrilling, and and I, I just don't think you can separate the one from the other. Well, what was it Robert Louis Stevenson used to say when he was asked the essence of a novel? He says it's just one damn thing after another. Yes, but about to go back to Prince Potemkin. I don't know if you followed this, but Putin has now stolen that body. Did you? Did you followed that? You know, it's very interesting. So the body where I where I put the flowers from Professor de Mandriaga, and um, I went into his tomb and even. And I was moved to find him because I'd looked for his bits of his body all over. Um, I went to, I went to, started in Romania, in Yash, Yashi, and I went into Moldova, and then I found where he died. And then I went back to Yash and found that that's where they left his viscera and brain. And then I went back, then I went to Kherson in Ukraine to find where they'd put his bones and his skull, but not his heart. And then I found where I think his heart was, was in Smolensk near, in Chichevo, his little village, where only, which is this beautiful village with only with only two old old people living in it. Everything else overgrown. We're going to take a quick break. I'm speaking with um, Simon Sebag Montefiore, his British historian on a book tour. His newest book, The World: A Family History. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Brooke Spector with the Deep Dive. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is The Deep Dive, and I'm Brooke Spector, and we're talking with Simon Sabag Montefiore, British historian. When we closed the last segment out, we were talking about the the remnants of uh, Grigory Potemkin scattered throughout Russia. You know, the search for his viscera. <laughs> but, you know, which, um, and, you know, necro history is very important, as, as President Putin has just shown. Because he's trying desperately to associate himself with a deep historical pattern. He is trying to associate himself, particularly with that era of Catherine the Great and Potemkin, because that is the period when they, Catherine and Potemkin took South Ukraine, and Potemkin founded all of these cities that we are now reading about, Sebastopol, Kherson, Mariupol, all of them were found in Odessa. I just used this very point in an article I did the other day on, on the current circumstances of the war, all the different extraordinary things that have happened together in a little capsule biography of Gregory Potemkin in the middle of it. Amazing how that's crept back right into the centerpiece. It's really interesting because when I wrote it in 2000 or 1999, Putin was just starting and he read the book and his people came and consulted me about all sorts of parts of it. And they wanted to know how he took Ukraine and how he took Crimea and how, how it all worked and the history of it. 
And of course, he now mentions Potemkin and Catherine and Savorov all the time, that whole period, but especially Catherine and Potemkin. And then he said to me, I didn't meet it, but his, the intermediary who was Minister of Culture said to me, you know, you'd like to, a certain personage would like to reward you for this book of these two great Russian leaders. It is indeed. It's the Holy Grail. It's better than a Fabergé egg or an entire farmyard of Fabergé eggs because um, I was just wanting to write a history of Stalin that treated him not as an ideological cold warrior, but like one would treat Genghis Khan or Louis XIV. So I was just planning this book, Stalin, The Court of the Red Tsar, and I was amazingly lucky that I was given, thanks to the president's order, a private room, all the staff helping me. Each of the staff in the, um, in the archive was an expert on a different handwriting. One was the Molotov expert, one was the Berrier expert, one was the Stalin expert, and they all came and read these bits of paper that all had the notes written all over them. And they'd say, that's Berrier there, that's Stalin. And here, look, look, Stalin's written at the bottom of this one. And so I was amazingly lucky. And every day they would, I spent about six months in there. And every day they would bring me, they'd say, we've got some amazing things for you. And they just arrived with this pile of amazing files. And I was just solving historical, you know, mysteries one after another and finding just amazing things. It was just like a, it was the greatest dream for a story. And that was thanks to President Putin. That takes me obviously to a, a question I've, I've, I've noted down for myself, which Somewhere you have a you have a theory of history in some way, shape, or form. Your book seems to indicate that you think more that history is an outcome of great and perhaps really good or really evil men and women, um, which is very different, say, than the than the Marxist interpretation of the way history is created. Of course, I re- I actually reject. Um, all sort of, all ideological straitjackets, as it were, and try to avoid um, all of them, including the Marxist approach. But in fact, I mean, I, I, I regard the use of these individuals and families merely as harnesses or tethers or stirrups to sort of climb up into the history and to reflect great movements of history, of technology, of ideology and migration. So I don't really regard history completely as a matter of great men, but I think there are moments when great men and women can change the fate. For example, I mean, you know, the moment that the Lenin, the Lenin coup in October 1917. I mean, since he was one of the only leaders that really wanted to launch the Bolshevik coup, most of the top Bolsheviks thought it wasn't the right time. It was clear that that coup, which changed the whole of world history, was the work of a man. And the man was Lenin. So there are moments of great decisiveness, I think. But I think, as Bismarck said, you know, individuals can only reach up and pull down ripe fruit. As I've been reading your book, and I, I confess to listeners, I haven't finished it yet. I've probably done about half of it, taking snippets from the end for people that I know more about and pushing myself back to read more about people I really knew very little about. The book, in a way, triggered a childhood memory. Is this, because Freud is in the book, of course. Yes, he is. Freudian moment. Is this going to be? Not exactly, because I remember two books influenced my thinking about history as a child. One was Henrik von Loon's The Story of Mankind, Mm. and the other was H.G. Wells' Outline of History, and both of them were not historians by the standards that we would think of as academic historians, but they tried to put everything into one book from 
from the beginning until the moment they put down their pen. Yeah, I mean, they were kind of, I mean, especially H.G. Wells one is sort of, yeah, I can see, I can see what you mean. But I hope that this has what you might call a deeper dive. Okay. Into it. So I was, I that was trying to like solicit appropriate, from you. That yeah. seems like an appropriate, um, phrase to use in these circumstances, doesn't it? Yeah. Those two books were almost a gallop through history. Yeah. I mean, the po- whole point about this is it has the span of world history, but it has the intimacy, the, the juice of biography. That's the idea. And that enables me to look at all sorts of, to look at all sorts of, of sort of wider, bigger movements of history, of technology, of ideology and so on. But the, the whole point is it's got to be accessible to anybody. It can be read by scholars, I hope, but it can also be read by people who know nothing, want to enjoy history. And by the way, when you were talking, were talking about dives into the book, even deeper dives, I think you, you can read it backwards, this book. You can read it forwards, you can read it backwards, you can open it wherever you want. Meant it's all in, it's the whole history of the world in one narrative, but you can read it backwards. And you, and you maybe you'd like to try that. Yeah, I mean, start with where we are now and work your way back to uh, Hannibal. Well, it ends with, the last page is, you know, it ends before the conclusion on the day of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It's pretty up to date. There'll be a second edition eventually, too, I suspect. Yeah, but it won't end. It's, it's not, I'm not adding to that. I'm never going to change the end like that again. I've, I've actually been updating the conclusion um, for, for the paperback. I did a little bit of exploring through the index as well. And one of the things that I noticed, there are a lot of personalities, there are a lot of historical incidents, but you're a little bit lighter for a reason I'm not sure about, of technology and its changes and developments and science and economics. I didn't see Adam Smith and I didn't see John Maynard Keynes. True. They're not in, they're not in them. I mean, it might be because, um, I'm not terribly interested in economics myself. And the book really does reflect my interests in life. But as for the scientists, actually, I've got a confession to make to you, which okay. you will appreciate, which is this, that the index is far from complete. Actually, all those technical advances are in the book, in fact, and okay. all of the scientists and all of the medical advances are in the book. But what happened was that when they were, when they gave the book to an index maker, they said, a very experienced index maker, they know exactly. I said, are you sure there's someone who understand Chinese names and Islamic Arab names? They said, absolutely. This person comes highly recommended. And I was like, when you say highly recommended, do you mean you don't know them? <laughs> they said, they said, yes, everyone recommends it. Anyway, when the index came, which was about four days before publication, I looked at it and everyone called Abdul Malik, even if they were, some of whom were 2000, you know, a thousand years apart, literally appeared as the same person, as did everybody called Frederick, Ooh. everybody called Peter, everyone called George, Lee, everyone yeah. called Mehmed, yeah. everyone called Abdul. Um, all of them appeared as the same person, even though they were thousands of years apart. And of course, um, all the Ptolemies, many of the Ptolemies were the same. What happened was, this is a sort of behind the scenes look at how these books are put together. So when I saw this, you can imagine, I literally almost kind of died of apoplexy. And then um, I said to them, they said, what can we do? And I said, like, well, I did warn you about the, um, and of course, and with the, and of course, the, the Chinese names were even worse because they didn't understand that, you know, every Chinese, every Chinese ruler had a, a birth name, that, that, that the surnames came first, yeah. as in Mao Zedong, and, um, and that they then had at least one regnal name as well. 
as did a lot of the um, a lot of the Arab rulers. So they said, "What can we do? We, we, how do we solve this?" I said, "I'm going to have to do it myself, and I'm going to have to do it. It's going to take me. It took me uh, three days and three nights to do it." And then you went to sleep. And then I went to sleep. But the result is, it is in a, it is a deeply incomplete index. But it had, and also another thing is that they didn't really understand countries even these, mm. these index makers. So a lot of the countries were missing, and so I was really in a, the way making you the book like this is a painful experience. And and that, and so that it's got the key things in that I remembered, um, and that I felt were essential to show more like to show the diversity of the book. But there are, there are quite a few people missing in it. We're speaking with uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore, historian and author of his new book. This is Brooke Spector in the Deep Dive, and we'll be back in just a minute. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is The Deep Dive, and this is Brooke Spector, and we're talking to British historian Simon Sebag Montefiore, who has written a monster of a book, awesome read. It's available in this country. It's not even available in the U.S. yet, so, you know, get it quickly and amaze your friends abroad. And we're talking about, when we took our break, we were talking about his having to redo the entire index, because I asked him why... The name, say, somebody like Albert Einstein only merits a footnote. Maybe there would have been a little bit more. You yes. haven't gotten to that chapter yes. yet. Well, the fact is that, um, that this was, this was one of the great, great, I mean, the whole book was, the writing of the book has been, was a nightmare. Um, you know, it was a nightmare. I barely slept for, I barely slept for three years writing it. Um, but this, it was, this was a COVID project, was a COVID it? project. Okay. And it couldn't have been done at any other time. It was, it's the greatest joy of my life, but also the most daunting, really. And, but the story of the index just shows it's extremely difficult to do something truly international and to find people that can work with you, um, on a broad, on this kind of broad project. And, you know, the index maker almost killed me. It was, literally was three days and three nights. My, my wife was in despair. And, um, can you imagine? my kind of the sort of pain I went through and anguish with my beloved project appearing with this huge imperfection. It's a giant blot right in the right at the end. But it, but it's fun in an interview like this actually to just to reveal things like this because people just don't realise the sort of pain that goes into a book like this. And it's interesting, I think. I've written a long piece on something entirely unrelated to, to anything we're talking about. And I I have been dreading the project of creating the index. I keep putting it off because it, it's one of those things that you go, oh, goodness, I really don't want to do this. this. I'll tell you something, Riddle. When I was writing about Chechnya in 1994, mm. and no one had heard of Chechnya, when I wrote my first article about it, which was in a great one of those great English newspapers, The Telegraph, all the mm-hmm. times, I wrote the article, and then to my horror, um, when it appeared, the idiot sub-editor had changed the word Chechen to Czech in every place. Ouch. Yeah. And there are people still chortling over that, probably. Probably. I've always lived with this question in my mind. You know, we often hear the phrase, grave crises call forth great men. Uh, But somebody, some wag responded to saying, great men usually cause grave crises. Yeah, good, yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. Uh, where do you come out on that balance? Well, two things. I mean, I, I write about this a lot in the, in the conclusion, but what I think is interesting is that the sort of 
the banal pygmies thrown up by democracies are far preferable to sort of swaggering, um, the swaggering potentates thrown up by autocracies. Actually, there's a great quote from Stalin where he says, where he says, you know, idiots, idiots can make history too. He says, or clowns can make history too. One of the great questions is of our time is like, what, you know, where is, where is Roosevelt and Churchill now? And the answer is they wouldn't have been Roosevelt and Churchill now because Nehru put it best. He said, um, that, you know, it wasn't that we were great people. It was just that, that we expanded to fit, to fit the call. Of, of the situation we were in. They were psychologically adept enough to be able to be flexible enough to respond to the overwhelming crisis that was taking place all around them. Roosevelt's a perfect example in my mind. When he was assistant secretary of the Navy during World War One. he was seen as something of a, of a lightweight. He got the job because it was a politically expedient job. Uh, it was something of a playboy, even if he was married. He didn't really pay much attention to the work. Polio taught him about mortality. This is a good point because this happens a lot in the in the book and in and in world history and in our own lives. You know, you go through something that is such a, a such an existential crisis that you come out of it with steel in your backbone and and perspective. And of course, that's the story of FDR. The feckless playboy becomes the world statesman with with real vision and actually. You know, another example is Prince Potemkin himself, who was a sort of gorgeous, gorgeous playboy who lost an eye and whose looks were destroyed and who went into depression and considered going into, into a monastery, but came out as the greatest minister of the Romanov dynasty of three or four hundred years of Russian history. So very similar, very, very similar process. I mean, one of the problems with today, though, of course, is, is since we're talking all of this high tech equipment, is that qualities needed to succeed in an age of 24-hour news and 24-hour Twitter are not the, quali- the same qualities needed to rule um, a complex bureaucracy in a multiplayer complex world and um, short of resources and all the other crises that we're facing today. There is a problem with the system. Yeah, I mean, you, you trigger a thought in my mind. I mean, Roosevelt was in the White House for 12 years, an invalid, the first, the first so far only physically handicapped American president. And yet through all of that, there's only one or two photographic evidences that ever made it into the public that he had this problem. Exactly. And his staff worked real hard to keep it out of the press. The press cooperated and nobody ever complained. And of course, the truth of the matter is now it wouldn't happen. That wouldn't happen for all sorts of reasons. But one is that you know, obviously, television would reveal immediately his infirmity and his and that he couldn't walk. And so it's so ironic that you know the most brilliant U.S. president, because he is up there with the, with the very top um, in terms of quality of leadership, was the only one who could not have been elected after 1960. You know, mm. he could not have been. He would could, he would have had no career after 1960, probably. So. Presidential staffs concealing the peccadilloes of their um, of their um, commander in chief are a regular feature, um, or either the peccadilloes or incapacities of their uh, of their commander in chief are a regular feature of American politics. When one thinks of Abraham Lincoln suffered from a disabling depression, and so did, for that matter, Winston Churchill. Yeah, uh, neither of them would have survived public scrutiny in today's world. No, because Churchill's finances as well as his drinking, as well as his 
dodgy friends, as well as his aristocratic imperious, imperious and imperial tastes, all would have ruled him out in a 24-hour news um, media. Another thing that we, we're not mentioning, which I, I, you know, which is interesting, is of course you're talking about Roosevelt, Nehru, and Churchill. All of them. This is an unfashionable thing to say, but all of them were highly educated with a certain ethos of um, history and almost a training for statesmanship. And they read and they talked to people who knew more than they did. And they read other people's works and they wrote their own. Yes. And they spent time um, not only listening, but reading reading, reading, reading all the time. And they, another thing is, with the great challenge of the system today of this 24-hour news, 24-hour Twitter, no one has time to read. Um, no one has the time to penetrate subjects into a, in deeply. They're living news cycle by news cycle, which means that forward-looking is possible to be consistent. And anyway, in democracies, we change governments every four years in the best, in the best circumstances. In England, we've been changing them in about every week, every few weeks at the moment. Prime Minister for the month. Yes, but then you contrast that with another system, autocracy. That has great advantages, of course, which is why it's a quite a popular system, because the autocrat does have time to think and plan ahead. You know, the Chinese, for example, with their grindingly slow um, bureaucracy, you know, giant communist party bureaucracy, you know, plans ahead in a way that is unthinkable in, in America or England, for example. That's not uniquely to the current Chinese government. This goes back to a much deeper strain of Chinese society, at least a thousand years of the way China has ruled or has been ruled and yeah. has been governed and how people in governing have thought about their place. Well, correct. And that's this book is truly a diverse book and it's filled with Chinese history um, and Indian history and histories of Asia and Africa. So autocracies have this advantage, especially China, with its with its forward thinking and its tradition of bureaucratic service and duty and austerity. But then it gets sclerotic if it's not carefully right. re- revitalized. Well, this is the problem. I mean, the advantage you can see with people like, say, Putin, for example, for 20 years, he's outwitted the West easily because he can make instant decisions like to go into intervene in Syria on his own, effectively, while the Western democracies... America and Britain and France are incredibly slow and worried and have to consult civil society and the media and the, and their legislatures. Czars can just intervene at the, at the drop of a hat with their own decision made at night on their own. But the word sclerotic is a good one because you can't get rid of them. And the longer people are in power, the less flexible they get, the less truths they hear, the less they want to hear unpalatable truths. And the more they believe their own publicity as they have told it. Correct. And the more isolated they become. And another feature which is interesting is the less equals they have. Like all these people start off with a team of, a team of rivals almost, or a team at least of, um, a coterie of people that knew them a long time and can tell them the truth and are probably capable, um, of advising them from major mistakes. But after 20 years, all those people have retired, been forced out, um, died, and you end up, as Putin has, isolated, really with nobody that is anywhere near his equal. And all his old St. Petersburg allies who came, who arrived with him, some of whom may have been capable 
are now retired or out of the, out of the inner circle. And that's the problem with autocracy. And the ultimate problem is you can't get rid of them. We're speaking with British historian Simon Sebag Montefiore about his new book, uh, which is a world history really from the beginning of time, pre beginning of certainly be- before history itself with the first couple of pages, uh, on through to pretty much last year, thousands of pages, beautifully written, thoughtfully presented, filled with all kinds of detail that makes you smile or even on occasion laugh. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. Let me ask you one last question. Put your future prognosticator hat on. You, you know Russia, Soviet Union very well. You know the West rather well. You know a lot of things well. What is going to happen with the fight in Ukraine? Where, how is this going to end? Um, I think that, I think the most likely is with a stalemate, a vicious stalemate which will define the borders of the future state of Ukraine. And it will be one of those conflicts like India-Pakistan after 47, Israel and the Arab countries 48, um, Korea 53, the Koreas 53, which will be interrupted by occasional wars. And um, Ukraine will thrive as, um, we hope, a, dem- a sort of what I call in the book a war democracy, uh, may join the EU, that's the most likely prognostication. But I believe also that Ukraine could win a decisive military victory. If it's a stalemate, Putin can remain in power, play glorying in his games. If there was a serious military victory by Ukraine, he would somehow be destroyed. And I've written several books about the ways that that can happen. Um, there's Barrier, there's Paul I, there's Peter III. Read the Romanovs and Stalin, but equally he could go into retirement in Saudi Arabia, for example, um, as, as dictators have in the past. If there was a serious military defeat of Russia, it's possible that that could change the entire destiny of Russia and destroy the system of autocracy that exists at the moment. All of this has been closely watched by an even greater, a greater theater, that is China and Taiwan. The fate of Taiwan will be decided on the fields, on the steps of Ukraine. And so Taiwan is a, is a real danger. There's also another danger that I foresee that is important, and that is the collapse of Pakistan, which is not mentioned often, which also involves China. The collapse of Pakistan, which I believe will happen in the next 20 years sometime, will draw India into Pakistan. But Pakistan, the fall of Pakistan would also draw in China and it would also draw in America. So there you've got not just two nuclear powers, but at least four. And so I think that that is at least a, a greater danger as, as Ukraine and Taiwan. If you talk Pakistan, I think you might also want to throw in the idea that Iran has something of a stake in that game as well, given its common border and given some ethnic affinities. Yeah, so we have dangerous dangerous times ahead. So we've been speaking with Simon Subag Montefiore, who has not given us an ideal answer about the future. He's given us some things to worry about, some things to be cautious about, and even some things to be very concerned about. But he's written a a heck of a book. And those of you uh, who don't have the luxury of uh, being able to sit in a bookstore and read it piece by piece like I have, go out and buy a copy.
it's it, it's a it's a lot of fun to read, and you will learn things from it. It's been a great time, great pleasure to speak with you today. I really enjoyed talking to you too. This has been fun and um, an honor to be um, an honor to be on this show with you, and you're a great admirer of your organ. This is Brooke Spector, the Deep Dive, and we will be back next week uh, with another guest. Uh, another issue, another matter of important concern for us all. And until next week, have a good weekend, and we'll talk to you again next Friday at 9.